From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. The snap to Del Rio on a play action, dropping back, stepping up, looking to throw. Fires a deep ball down the field for Cleveland. He makes the catch and then is tackled at the 30-yard line. Oh, my Tyree Cleveland. Inside the left hash, 53-yard attempt. There's the snap. The kick is on the way. It looks good, and it is good. Oh, my 53-yard Eddie Pinheiro. He doesn't like those short ones. He wants 50 and more. Gators leading 6-0. And Missouri comes out on offense at the 37-yard line. The snap to Drew Locke. Locke throws the ball. It's intercepted. Tease Tabor. He's got a pick six. Oh, my. 37-yard. Thank you very much. Tease Tabor takes it to the house. The snap to Locke. Locke dropping back, looking, looking, throws the ball to left. It's intercepted by Quincy Wilson at the 40-yard line, at the 50, down the sideline, the 40, the 35, the 30, the 20, the 10, the 5. Touchdown! Touchdown! Oh, my! Quincy Wilson, 68-yard pick six. It's 19 to nothing. I don't know if I've ever seen anything like this with two interceptions returning for touchdowns within a couple of minutes of each other. What a fantastic play by Quincy Wilson. Third down and eight at the 21-yard line. There's the snap to Del Rio. Dropping back to throw over the middle. He's got a wide-open receiver, and it will be a touchdown for Tyree Cleveland, who made the catch at the 10-yard line and then turned it up with Greengrass in front. And the Gators get a touchdown from Tyree Cleveland, the first of his career, and it's 26-7. to now here's a running play to Scarlett. Scarlett with a nice run up into the secondary, the 25 to the 20. Cuts to the right, to the 15, to the 10, to the 5. Touchdown! Touchdown! Beautiful touchdown run for the Gators. It's 32 to 7. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Fresh off a 40 to 14 thumping of Missouri on homecoming, the Gators are enjoying their bye week as they rest up for their annual trip to Jacksonville for Florida, Georgia. But we don't take weeks off here on the official podcast, The Gators, and we have a lot in store for you today, including an interview with linebacker and real-life hero Christian Garcia and another roundtable discussion spanning a multitude of topics with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Plus, we'll hear from both Mike White and Amanda Butler as basketball season is just a few weeks away. But first... Far too often we see college football players in the news for the wrong reasons, so it's refreshing when an athlete makes positive headlines. That was the case over the summer when walk-on linebacker Christian Garcia rescued a woman from a sexual assault occurring outside a bar where he was working. This act led to national attention and a recent trip to Washington, D.C., where he got to meet the vice president. But before getting to that part of the story, we wanted to get to know Garcia better and find out what molded him into being a difference maker. I grew up in Miami, Florida. My dad uh, wasn't really around a lot, so I was raised by a single mother, and uh, I mean, I've been playing football since I was nine years old. That's just something I've always wanted to do, and uh, it's pretty much all. What offers did you have coming out of high school? Because obviously you didn't end up here on scholarship, so what were your options like for football out of high school? Yeah, I mean, I was hoping to go to a a pretty big Division I program, 
that obviously didn't happen. Bowling Green actually verbally offered me uh, at school, and they offered me to come on a visit too. And uh, once he went back to school, he never uh, replied to me again. And then I also had a couple of Division One AA's, but finally chose on a Division Two in uh, Ohio Malone University. So how discouraging was that? Because you said you always want to play football yeah. growing up, and you wanted to go to Division One. How did you fight through that disappointment of not getting the offer that you wanted? Yeah, I mean, it was really tough, honestly. Uh, after signing day, I got I was really depressed. Probably stopped working out for about four to five months, lost about mm-hmm. 30 pounds because I was a defensive lineman in high school. And uh, actually, when I got to Malone University, I was about 40 pounds underweight, like from when I visited them. But once I got back to playing football, even though it was at the Division Two level, I mean, the love just came back and uh, sparked my fire again. Now, you transferred to multiple schools on your way here. This has been a very wayward path for you. Can yeah. you talk about all of the steps you've had along the way to getting to Florida? Yeah, so it was a long, long journey to get here to Florida. I transferred after one semester at Malone University. I played there, started a few games, and I had a pretty good season. And I transferred to Florida Tech, which is in Melbourne, Florida, another Division II. Uh, I went through spring practice there. It went well. Went through summer workouts, went through fall camp, and the first week of school. And then after the first week of school, uh, I just figured I wanted to go play at a bigger program, and this wasn't for me. So I told the coaches I was transferring. I actually withdrew from school before I actually told them anything. Hmm. And uh, they were pretty upset, to say the least. And I packed up all my all my stuff. I got out of my uh, – terminated my lease from my apartment, and I sold all my furniture to pay for my first rent here in Gainesville. So it was pretty pretty crazy journey. And why was Florida the destination? I mean, what was driving you so hard to Florida specifically? Florida, I knew some people who lived in the town, so I knew that I could get a lease. And then also uh, I just knew it was a big program. It was also one of the best academic schools in the state, which I felt I could uh, I could get in as well. So – that's one of the big reasons that drew me to Florida. Now, your path to being a walk-on is even a little bit unique. I know you started yeah. in the video department and yeah. then worked your way in. So just talk about your progression, getting involved with the program yeah. through becoming a walk-on. So uh, after my first week, I was at Santa Fe College. I knew a friend who was working video here for the team. So I asked him if I could like get involved. And so I started volunteering, and I volunteered for the season and through spring practice. I had talked to George a few times, uh, George Wynn, the director of football operations, and a couple of the coaches from the previous coaching staff. And then uh, through spring practice, I talked to George again, and the new staff came in. So uh, I was kind of disappointed because I had talked to some of the old coaches, but uh, George still stayed around with the new staff, so that worked out. And uh, I got accepted to the University of Florida for the fall semester of last year. And uh, George said to come to his office first day of school. And uh, he actually couldn't meet with me for, like, the first three days. I literally waited in the football offices for about four hours every day just to try and get a word with him. Hmm. And uh, finally, after a couple days, he talked to me. So working behind the scenes and then becoming a walk-on, how much of an appreciation did that give you for the other side since you were on both ends of it? Oh, definitely. It gave me a great appreciation for everything that goes into the program. I mean, it's not only the players who work hard. It's the coaches, the video staff, the equipment staff. So, I mean, I was just so grateful once I actually got to be on the team because I would just look at, like, all the players, like, idols and role models. So just being on the other side now, it's just it's just an incredible feeling. I'm so grateful. What's the dynamic like? Because certainly you've got your star players. You have your big names everybody knows. And then you go through the list and you've got walk-ons, people mm-hmm. that are off on the sidelines but don't get to play. Yeah. What's the dynamic like of joining a team with so many big-time names, guys are going to go to the NFL, and being someone who isn't on that same level? It was pretty intimidating at first, but, I mean, after a couple of weeks of being in the locker room, everybody welcomes you. I mean, definitely once you go through the grind of everybody, I mean, everybody's a brother in that locker room, and, I mean, we're all great friends. When I first got on the team, my locker was two lockers away from Vernon Hargrave, so that was, like, <laughs> that was pretty, like, crazy. I know everybody knew his name, and he went top ten in the draft. So in the locker room, we all treat each other as equals. I mean, other people see the star players, but 
definitely we all we all feel the same in the locker room. What are the the tangible differences between being a scholarship athlete and being a walk on? Yeah, so there definitely are differences when it comes to the football aspect of things. Uh, school being paid for mm -hmm. and. Uh, the meals and, and a little bit of the treatment, but I mean, the coaches treat us all great and there's nothing I could ever complain about from them. You mentioned that Michigan, that was when you got in for the first time. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, when you've been a walk-on, you've been there on the sidelines, you haven't got a chance to play. How do you get that call? Did you know you were going to have a chance to play or are you just sitting there hanging out and all of a sudden your number gets called? Uh, yeah, I actually knew it was going to happen. Uh, throughout the week, Anthony Harrell actually became ineligible and uh, they pulled me up from the scout team. And so I'd been practicing with second string all week, and uh, Coach Collins and Coach Shannon were telling me to be ready to go in. I actually had a shot to get in the second quarter, but I was too far away from the coaches. They were calling my name. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I was nowhere to be found. I don't know what I was doing. And I was like, wow, I just missed my shot. Like, I was really like, I'm never going to go in. So uh, it was a pretty crazy experience, especially that I got on the team week three. And, I mean, guys will be here all through camp, and, I mean, we'll never touch the field. So. It was a pretty cool experience. So how does your number get called? I mean, that's I think yeah. the thing that I'm trying to understand. If you're not someone who's normally in the rotation, uh, how do you suddenly go into the game? Is there a certain coach that comes and grabs you and tells you? Do yeah. you go check in and say, mm -hmm. hey, is it, <laughs> is it my time yet? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't ask if I'm going to go in yet. But, <laughs> just, uh, just stay there and keep asking. Eventually, yeah. they'll put you in. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> I just practiced great all season. I mean, I pretty much taught myself the defense because by the time I got here, the defense was already installed and everything. And uh, – I just worked hard every single day, and then uh, during the bowl practices, they gave everybody a lot of reps since uh, we had a lot of extra practices, and uh, I just pretty much outperformed some people, and I just I just made the most of my opportunities. So you're on the field, you're playing Michigan, it's in a bowl game. What's going through your mind as someone who earlier that year was analyzing video for the team? Yeah, I mean, it was just an incredible experience. I remember just my first play on the field before the play was even called. I was just looking up at the stands and looking how many people were there. And I was like, before I was up there in the press box videotaping these guys, and now I'm out here on the field playing with, with a Big Ten team in a bowl game. So it was surreal. So that was a big moment for you, but that's yeah. not the reason most people ended up knowing your name. Yeah. That's because of what happened on July 21st. So yeah. take us through that night, set the scene for us, and, and what happened from your perspective. Uh, so I was taking out the trash. It was about 2.30 a.m. We had already closed the bar. And uh, so I took out the trash, and I noticed, me and my coworker noticed um, a man who had a woman pressed up against the dumpster. And uh, so I threw away the trash. At first I thought what was happening was consensual. So uh, I just turned the cheek, and I kept walking away. And then, I mean, something just instantly hit me that that wasn't right. So I turned around, and then I grabbed the man by the shoulder and uh, told him to get off her. And uh, after that, there was a little altercation, but, I mean, he didn't touch me or anything like that. And then uh, he just fled the scene from there, and we called the authorities. So what's that moment like? A lot of people see something that's going wrong, and they don't do anything about it. They don't want to get involved. What was it for you that said, I, I need to, to step in here? I think it just it really upset me that other people were watching what was happening. So I was like, if that's my sister and somebody was watching, I would, I'd be pretty upset at everybody who was watching and didn't stop it. So I guess that was really the thought process that happened. And then also one of the speakers that Coach Mack brought in throughout the season really hit me at that moment too. We always talk about football players being role models, and you don't always see that being the case. How important was it for you to then have that opportunity to be a positive role model? And, and Luke Del Rio tweeted about it and said, I hope people talk about this story and not just all the scandals. What did it mean to you to be part of a positive college football story? I mean, it was pretty unique because, like, like Luke said and a lot of people say, they only report the bad stuff. So, I mean, I think what I do off the field will always trump whatever I do on the field. I mean, I could catch a game-winning interception in the SEC championship, but the positive impact that we as athletes can make off the field is just way more important than anything we can do on the field, and I was just happy that I was able to be part of that. 
What was it like for you to get all of that attention? Because it'd be one thing if, you know, one of the, the huge stars does yeah. something like that and it's everywhere. But I mean, you're not someone who gets a lot of attention normally. So what was that like to suddenly be thrust into the national headlines? Yeah, it was pretty unique. I went from watching player interviews and coach interviews to being the one getting interviewed. <laughs> so uh, it was definitely a cool experience. But, uh, I mean, I wasn't looking for the headlines, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, when uh, – I actually, like, the day after, one of the coaches was like, you ready for all the publicity you're going to get? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I didn't even think it was going to happen. And the next day I'm just getting thrusted with phone calls from reporters all over the country. The add-on to this is that eventually you find out that you're going to the White House. Yeah. So how did that part of this story develop? That's almost the, the second act here is it happens and everyone's really happy that you stepped mm-hmm. in and, and, you know, you, you were a positive role model. And then this whole other part develops from it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I got a Facebook message from an organization called It's On Us. So uh, they told me to uh, – they wanted me to uh, be a part of a PSA that they were filming. Coach Mack, luckily, it was during a game week. He let me uh, keep my spot on special teams and also be able to travel to New York. It was the Vanderbilt week. So uh, I went up there to New York first to film that PSA, and then up there is where I found out that I'd have an opportunity to go to the White House the week after. You find out you're going to the White House yeah. and you're going to be in part of this, this huge thing. What was your reaction to that? I just couldn't believe it that I was being invited to the White House. That's something very prestigious. And, uh, I mean, I just felt what I did, it wasn't, like, it was just something natural for me. It wasn't something mm-hmm. so heroic and brave in my eyes. Uh, so it was, just, it was just a great experience, and uh, I was happy that I was able to go up there. And you're up there as part of, as you said, the It's On Us mm-hmm. award or the, the honor yeah. that you received. Can you talk about what that is, what it means? Yeah, so It's On Us is an organization devoted to uh, stopping sexual assault and bystander intervention. So they want to engage and empower people to be a positive influence in that aspect. So, uh, I mean, it was just it was just a great award. Uh, meeting Joe Biden was an even cooler experience. He was so down to earth and real. So uh, especially him knowing my story, because, uh, I mean, obviously when he met me, he was able to talk about some of the details that happened. It was pretty unique, especially all the stuff that comes across his desk. I was just I was just honored to be there and be a part of uh, that ceremony. How long did you have a chance to talk to him? What, what did he say to you? Uh, it was about two minutes long, and he was just uh, – he was just saying how proud of me he was, and he talked a little bit about how he played college football. Maybe back then, if he had did something like that, it wouldn't have been recognized or accepted as well as by his teammates. So he was just saying he was happy that I stepped outside of uh, my comfort zone and did something. What was it like meeting these other people, and, and what were their stories like that, that they shared? Yeah, I mean, their stories were, were very cool as well. Um, I was actually more inspired by their stories than mine, because what they did, it took a lot more took a lot more thought process because uh one of the kids i mean he just got this girl a safe ride home when she was just a little bit uh drunk so i mean something like that goes a long way more than what i did because something like that doesn't happen every day something like what he did happens every day and to see something like him happen like that i thought it was a great story so you're getting paraded around dc you're seeing all these sites i saw a list of you just talked about all the different places that, that you got to see yeah uh got to see the white house and the eisenhower building the west wing and we got to walk a little bit on the front lawn which was which was pretty cool. I mean, the White House wasn't as big as I thought it would be. It was, <laughs> it was pretty funny actually just being out there in front and uh, looking at the city from the White House and not looking at the White House from the city. So we got to see the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, and just walk a little bit around D.C. What was the highlight of, of the trip? What was the coolest thing that you had a chance to see? The coolest thing I got to see was probably we walked by the Situation Room mm. in the White House, yeah, and the door was actually peeked open a little bit, so I got to see a little bit of that. That was pretty cool. And you got to go in the Oval Office, right? No, I did not. No, you didn't get yeah. the Oh, they stopped short of the Oval. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't that uh, special. <laughs> <laughs> was it, I mean, the things that you saw being in the White House, was it like what you'd seen on TV and in the movies? I mean, was it what you expected or was it different than, than you expected? 
Uh, it was pretty much what I expected. Uh, I mean, there was so much history there. When we were in uh, the vice president's office, we actually got to see his desk. And uh, inside the drawer of the desk was actually inscribed a bunch of signatures of all the uh, old vice presidents. So that was pretty cool to see. And then also where Richard Nixon installed, uh, like, the tapes for the Watergate scandal, mm-hmm. it was still there in the desk. So she so had some history out of this as yeah. well. Uh-huh. Got a history lesson. So I'm, I'm curious, has this had any impact on your future plans after football? What's next for you? I'm not really sure what's next for me after football is done. I guess I'll see what happens. Uh, I definitely want to keep getting involved with this organization, and I'm probably going to bring it on campus during the spring. And uh, after football, we'll just see where it goes. I want to work somewhere in sports, and uh, wherever it ends up, I'll end up. So obviously you changed this girl's life in, in large part. And now it seems like this event and everything that's happened since then, it's, it's sort of changed you yeah. as well. Oh, yeah, most definitely. It's definitely making me think about other things more than football because sometimes we just get caught up in this crazy world of sports. And it's just a distraction because there's so many other things that happen outside of football, which is real life. So uh, definitely it's changed my life and my perspective of things a lot. If we can bring things back to football here to wrap it up, uh, right now you guys are in your bye week, essentially your second bye week in three yeah. weeks. What's the focus right now during this bye week as you prepare for Georgia on the horizon? Yeah, the focus, as some of the coaches have been talking, is to develop depth and uh, just get better. I mean, these practices aren't to mess around. We're here to get better, and uh, that's pretty much the focus of the bye week. And, uh, I mean, the East is in our hands, so we just want to make sure that we have the right mindset to keep it rolling. And you are on the field now, so your yeah. special teams, where can fans see, where should they look for you during games? Yeah, so uh, I usually start on kick return and punt return, so they'll see me in the back line of kick return trying to open up holes for the returner, and then also on punt return I'll either be going to try and block the kick or hold up some of the guys trying to make a tackle. And then also last week against Mizzou I got to play a little bit at linebacker, which was, which was pretty awesome as well. And Coach Mack talked about that after the game. He said how special it was force some of the walk-ons, the scout team yeah. guys, to get into a game like that. I mean, what, what does that mean for you and the other guys coming from where you're coming from? Yeah, I mean, we all root for each other. I mean, all the walk-ons, back, we have a little corner back there in the locker room, and, I mean, we're all just brothers. We go through the same thing as all the scholarship guys go through. We go through the workouts, the practices. So, I mean, to be able to play is just an incredible experience for us. Like, it's, it's just so, so memorable, especially, like, coming from where we come from. And, uh, I mean, it was just great. I was able to be out there with a lot of uh, other walk-ons, and it was just a great experience. Christian, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Believe it or not, basketball season is just around the corner. Both the men's and women's squads will face a unique challenge in barnstorming around the state throughout the first two months of the season until the O-Dome is ready for its reopening in late December. We held another roundtable discussion with Scott Carter and Chris Harry about basketball, the new facilities project, and more. And we started by getting Chris's take on year two for Mike White. Well, I think one of the things that is key about this team, if you had asked me, say, six, seven months ago, whether it was in March, whether Devin Robinson and John Ibunu would be here, and I'm talking about before they suffered their injuries late in the year, um, I would probably have said no. I think they were both going to explore. Obviously, Devin Robinson put his name into the NBA to hear the feedback on rel- relative to where he was going to be. Dra- I think he was going to go in anyway. Um, Johnny Boone was thinking about turning pro also, even if that, whether that meant going overseas, I don't know. But here, these these two guys are back. And now you throw in Canyon Berry into the mix, who was, by all accounts, the number one uh, graduate transfer on the market, comes from Char- College of Charleston. Um, you think – Barry, you think Rick Barry, you think sharpshooter. Uh, he's a good shooter. I wouldn't say he's an excellent shooter, but he, he has a lot of basketball savvy about him. I think he's going to provide something to this team as far as um, offense, knowing what to do, passing, just a, an overall kind of game and some nice senior leadership. But 
you know, the, Dorian Finney-Smith is the, is really the only guy who's missing from this team last year. Now, granted, that's a that's a big hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, led the team in, in scoring and rebounding. But I think this team has the kind of makeup, Adam, where they can go to different people to try to make up for what, what's not there anymore with Dorian being gone. But at the same time, no one's going to be looking around for Dorian to make a play like maybe that happened a little bit too much last year when some guys were standing around waiting for him versus making something happen themselves. So um, it's a team, 21-15 last year, went to the NIT, lost some games late. They should have won, especially home games, Alabama, Vanderbilt game, come to my mind. Um, they have a nice nucleus to be a better team than last year. Uh, Mike White's second year, uh, he made a big jump, I think, from 16 wins to 27 or 29 wins his second year at La Tech. Wow. Knows his team better. Just in being at practice, he's much more aggressive and animated with them than he was this time last year. That's a, there's a comfort zone for everybody there. I think Devin Robinson and Casey Hill even said, look, when he got here, all we knew was what Billy Donovan had told us. So there was a some acclimation there that had to be done. And, you know, turn them loose and see what happens. One of the things that's going to be different, obviously, is not being able to play at home until late in December because of the O-Dome. But maybe that will help them relative to getting battle-tested in so-called neutral site games and being away from home. But uh, that also could do some things for chemistry, a lot of travel like that. Yeah, it's interesting if you look at the second year for Mike White, and I think what that also indicates is you're moving further away from the Billy Donovan era, and it's more his program. It seems like that first year when you're replacing a legend, there's just so much of you're looking on the sideline and you're more surprised about who you don't see as opposed to who you do see. So it does seem like the second year is going to be really big for Mike White in terms of really making this program his own and not having to worry so much about the shadow of such a legend. Yeah, I'm sure that that's anytime you can distance yourself from someone that's that successful and kind of start bringing in your own players and putting your own stamp on a program. You know, they're going into this new building, which is kind of a, a nice symbol of that, what you're talking about. You know, mm-hmm. it's starting over there. He's got to feel re-energized by that. And also, I mean, going back to just what I saw on the court last year, Chris mentioned all the new guys like Canyon Berry and the, I think, you know, that savviness that he talked about, that could really play big with this group. But also, you know, when I watched this team in the postseason last season as they made a little run, I thought Casey Hill and Kavarius Hayes were the two guys who really elevated their play beyond anybody else during the regular season. If those guys can somehow carry that over consistently, we I think Hayes is uh, young enough to where he's going to continue to develop. Obviously, Casey Hill's been kind of an enigma on and off here. Seems like fans have kind of a love-hate relationship with him, but he's a talented guy. If you can play consistently like he did down the stretch last year, I mean, that's, that's a huge difference for this basketball if he stay, team. If he maintains himself as a pass-first point guard, that's when he's at his best. If he's hunting shots, Casey Hill's not really going to help you that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can drive to the basket. He needs to finish better, obviously. But you don't want him out there jacking three-pointers. If he's wide open, yeah, go ahead and take it. But I step back to last year, something Scott said. Um, this time last year, Mike White had watched what Billy Donovan did with his players, and he tried to do a lot of what Billy Donovan – this team – was recruited to play Billy Donovan style, which was a lot more half court than you think of Billy Donovan, you think shooting three. It's really one that. It hadn't mm-hmm. been that for a while. Mike White wants to play more wide open style of basketball. And maybe after a year, this this team, after the off season, you know, teaching them some of the concepts of a little more, not, not so much structured basketball. This might suit this team a lot better, um, you know, doing stuff like that. But they, they're going to they're have to shoot the three ball better, and they're going to have to shoot free throws better to build on what happened last year. Everyone's wondering, has Canyon Berry started teaching his teammates how to shoot the underhanded free throws? 
Is it permeating through, or is it just Candy no, no, Barrett no, that's no, going to do that? Nobody's done it. No uh, one's done it? Nobody's done ah. it. He, he, well, he tried to teach John. John like took like <laughs> 10, and he said, I'm not doing it. He's tried to teach his freshman roommate, Gorjak Gak, to do it. Gak is right now, he's a really, really bad free throw shooter. And he's, got, he's now wearing a plate on the side of his hand to try to keep his hand straight. And Barry's like, Gak, just do it underhand like this. You know, your hands are big enough. And <laughs> Gak goes, no, man, no, man, I'm not doing that. So uh, it's funny because I talked to Rick Barry. All his sons resisted it because they didn't want to shoot like girls. And that's, that's what they told him. They were, you know, granny free throw shooter. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. Brent Berry tried it uh, and, and stopped doing it. After, you know, he tried to do it a little bit. Uh, Canyon didn't do it till his junior year of high school. And it took him about four years before he started to make that steady increase. He was always at 70%, both overhanded and underhanded. Last year, 84.5. And, uh, you know, he's shooting very well in practice right now. One of the other things we've seen recently is the announcement that Kevin O'Sullivan is now the highest-paid baseball coach in the country. So as we talk about the final things Jeremy Foley is doing on his way out, that's a pretty big move to put Sully in here long-term. Yeah, it is. Uh, you've got to remember over the summer um, when Texas was looking for a coach that you know they kind of uh, had Kevin O'Sullivan at the top of their uh, wish list. And uh, they have a lot of resources out there. They have, a lot of, they have a lot of nice facilities. Their facilities are kind of looked at as maybe better than Florida's. Um, so at that point, Jeremy and Kevin had some talks, and uh, Jeremy made some commitments, and uh, those are things that he wanted to carry out before he leaves here. And part of that was securing Sullivan's future, and obviously the baseball stadium is part of that master plan that UA uh, uh, unveiled recently. And then Scott Strickland coming in, he even talked about it in his press conference. This guy really – Loves college baseball. Well, it's such a big part of Mississippi State's yeah. culture. And yeah, and they've done a really good job of making that sport. I mean, you can argue that it's bigger than men's basketball out there. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, just as big as football, if they could fit more people in there, they probably would. I think they've expanded it about all they can, but they're usually leading the SEC in attendance. So uh, he understands that, and I'm sure that had to be music to Kevin O'Sullivan's ears because he's built a great program here. They've gone to five College World Series and – what, nine years? I mean, they'd gone to five in the previous uh, 90 years. <laughs> so that shows you that he's got the program playing at a very high level. He's regarded as the best recruiter in the country. Now he's got this uh, contract that shows that. And really the only thing left for them is to, you know, go out and win one and to really make McKeithen Stadium more of a kind of a place where people want to go on in the spring and early summer. I mean, they've got the kind of program that should not be playing postseason games with 1,500 or 2,000 people there. I mean, it's a program that's worthy of a, a packed house on a regular basis. The fan experience goes and back to what Scott Strickland said. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's one area. He I'm will examine it. Yeah, I'm sure he'll look at. And the, but for them to lock up O'Sullivan, I thought that was a big thing for the Gators because it was going to be a case of where as long as Florida continued to have a good team and these other schools were looking for coaches, he was going to be at the – top of their list for a while so obviously from his standpoint to sign a 10-year deal mm -hmm. he wants to be here so you know it was a kind of a win-win situation for a uh, florida and, and a sullivan so one part of the deal was obviously securing him the other part was saying we're serious about the stadium mm -hmm. they made that announcement they made it for softball as well and of course the expansion of football so can we talk a little bit about the details of this master plan hundred million dollar project and, and how it's going to change the look of those particular facilities you're talking about a standalone football facility, which is probably long overdue, Scott, don't you think? I mean, the, Well, the, you know, when it, you look around the SEC, most schools have these these days. And uh, when you're winning 
like Florida has so much, you know, you, you kind of wonder, well, you know, why are this thing so important? But, you know, you look at the football program, it's obviously dipped in recent years. And every generation of recruits are so different than, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the kids who Jim McElwain is recruiting right now, they have a whole different experience than what Urban Meyer recruited. And back to Steve Spurrier, I mean, you know, every four or five years, I mean, these kids that the Gators are after now, they – they were what eight years old when Tim Tebow and was yeah. around. So I mean, it doesn't resonate with them. So you have to continually find a wow factor, a, a way to sell your program, and that's why recruiting is such a tough job. I mean, because you have to always be on top of it. So I think that's where a standalone football facility can help the program. Uh, that's something that you know, if a kid's going to, hey, I, I'm looking at Alabama, Florida State, Auburn, Georgia. Clemson. Clemson and all those schools have one and he's a Florida kid from Fort Lauderdale but the Gators don't have one sure it maybe plays into and it. some of those places Adam have Alabama has a running river going through their, their, their <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's their football Clemson has a bowling alley and it's oh, wow. extravagant okay. player lounges the there's bells and whistles mm-hmm. that have to come into play now and this goes back to that phrase you hear a lot thrown around from athletic directors you don't want to get into an arms race but eventually it becomes an arms race mm-hmm. because when Steve Spurrier was recruiting players his selling point was the swamp on a Saturday mm-hmm. now these guys are in the swamp on a Saturday, they're in the swamp four hours a week. What Jim McElwain wants them to be at the football facility, hanging out, whether it's watching film in the in the players' lounge, doing stuff like that. But a reason to be around the program mm-hmm. more often. And and again, we're we're talking about picking the place up, building a whole new facility out there by track, uh, over there by the basketball facility, so that it will be buttressing the practice fields right, right and now. Just, and to explain what that is, because I think people say, well, they built the indoor practice facility. What does this mean? No, Can you explain what the, that it's means? It's on the entire other side of, of the field. You're talking about, like, the locker rooms, the player lounge, the uh, actual football headquarters. Coaches' that you, offices. Coaches, where they gather. Coaches, where, the where they gather, gathered, where yes. they meet. It's the football offices, yeah, and football teams' offices, basically. And out the back door, they walk out onto their practice fields. And on the other side of the practice field is where the indoor facility is. So mm-hmm. all of it in one place instead of walking out of the stadium and walking across campus to get to your practice facility or get to your uh, indoor facility and what have you. And as far as the baseball field, they want to make it – obviously the, the trend nowadays is to make it like some of these beautiful minor league parks. And mm-hmm. so that that's obviously would be the gold standard for a thing like that. Where, where that ends up with Scott Strickland now in charge, we'll have to see. And you and I both know that the softball stadium is well overdue. I mean, you go to a lot of places, there's a lot of really nice softball fields, mm-hmm. softball stadiums in the, in the Southeastern Conference, absolutely. And um, this one's overdue, and Tim Walton and those women over there deserve something a, a lot better than what's there right now, and they're going to get it. Yeah, I mean, you look at that what he just talked about plus the O-Dome. You know, in two or three years, hopefully when all this stuff's done, or sooner, I mean, it, they, they should have – a really uh, an updated facility plan. And, and there's always going to be stuff to improve. I mm-hmm. mean, that's just the nature of the beast. But that's something that fans, certainly, I'm, I'm, I can tell you I'm excited to go out <laughs> to a baseball stadium that I want to be at. I mean, right. that you, you know, you you know you just want to go to. Because, I mean, to me, baseball, watching baseball, is a, and I'm, I'm a baseball fan, obviously. So mm-hmm. I would go to more games if I was a local resident here and you had a little bit of shade and you had a, a nice facility. 
Right, and I, I will say this. I, I went to uh, University of South Florida when they opened uh, the Sun Dome. I was a student there. And then the same guy designed the O-Dome. And mm-hmm. at the time, you know, it's, oh, this is a really cool place. Well, it eventually became like a very dour place to be. And I do know that they did a renovation of the Sun Dome in Tampa, which is, again, a lower, a smaller scale of this. And it was, it was beautiful. The same kind of plan exists. I imagine when we walk into the O-Dome for the first time uh, come December 21st for that Arkansas Little Rock game, that there's going to be a wow factor with us. And that goes back to fan experience with Scott Strickland will be very high on. And credit to, uh, obviously, the, the administration right now and the university right now for going through with that. And with the exception of the football facility, the things we're talking about, softball and uh, uh, baseball, and now the Odom, so much of what we're talking about now, that's tied into making it better for the fans. The center-hung scoreboard, mm-hmm. better sound system, and stuff. And, yeah, there's going to be better locker rooms, but amenities for the fans are really, really important. You want people to want to go out to those games. You don't want them out there baking in the sun. You want them to enjoy themselves, have their families out there. And I think there's all kinds of possibilities with both the baseball and the softball fields. The men's and women's teams will both start their seasons in Jacksonville, playing a doubleheader on November 11th. So it's only fitting that you get to hear from them back-to-back as Mike White and Amanda Butler weigh in on the dawn of a new day. We'd like to play in a perfect world in, in a similar style to the way that we finished last year. where We picked the tempo back up. Again, I've been open about this. I kind of regret not having played that way more consistently throughout the year last year. I think it it helps us play to our strengths. I think it's advantageous to us to play pretty fast, yet there's that fine line between um, playing fast and and taking crazy shots. Uh, So we've got to be cognizant of what's a good shot for for which guy, where on the court and and when in the shot clock and things like that. But uh, defensively and offensively, we do want to play pressure basketball. Uh, We do want to promote tempo. We've practiced like that the last three days. That doesn't happen overnight. Preston Green is as good as anyone in the country at, uh, with off-season conditioning, yet game shape to play that we want to play uh, won't take place. Real game shape, you know, probably for another month or so. I really enjoy this team. Uh, I love the way they love each other, how hard they work for each other. Um, I, I think that they take themselves very seriously. There is a, a great deal of pride And the amount of work that's been invested going back from the summer all the way into the preseason. And um, and it's showing up in the way that that we practice and in the strength of our culture. So I think we've got some great things on the horizon. A really, really tough non-conference schedule. Um, Not even adding in the fact that none of those games will will actually be at home. Uh, But I think that's going to be a unique challenge that will, will really benefit us when we get to SEC play and we get the privilege of playing those first ball games in that new, that new O-Dome. It's going to be really fun. When we talk about leadership as a staff, we don't have one guy that just really sticks out, a guy who just um, controls the locker room or, or whose voice is heard over everyone else's. And, and you could perceive that as a negative, uh, but we like to optimistically see it as a positive in that we have four or five guys that will voice their opinions at different times, and not necessarily all older guys either. Um, you know, the, the, I think the best teams, if you have 13 scholarship guys, which you'd really want is 13 leaders. It's, it's a little bit unrealistic, but, um, you know, the best teams have, they have a few leaders. They have maybe even have a bunch. Um, so we'll continue to promote that. I guess the guys that stick out, 
to this point through practices. Johnny Boone was, I think, I think he stepped up his, his leadership. Um, he's been a little bit more vocal. He's been really even keel. He's made really good decisions. He's been pretty mentally tough through. He's carrying a lot of weight, and he's, uh, he's been right there with the guards in terms of his, his, his physical effort. He's not wearing down, so he's leading a, a bunch by example. Casey's trying to help some of these younger guys. Chris Chios is a, always a pretty uh, steady influence by example. You know what you're going to get from Chris day in and day out. I would put Justin Leon in that category as well. Physically, plays as hard as anyone on our roster consistently, and it's always a great example in that regard. Vocally, um, I'd put Canyon Berry, even though he's a newcomer. Canyon is as vocal as, as we have. Um, he'll probably become a little bit more vocal here a couple months from now as he's more familiar with what he's dealing with, what we're trying to teach, what we're trying to carry over, and, and as he gains confidence probably uh, throughout the season. Yeah, the boxing, I, I love talking about that. And, um, you know, we play in the, in the best league in the country, and I think that we have one of the best overall schedules in the country this year. Our strength of schedule, I think, is going to be ridiculous. And so we have to find unique ways to create an edge. Uh, everybody's in the gym working hard this week. Everyone spent their summers lifting and, and getting shots up and, and trying to perfect their game. Uh, we really want to try to find every way that we can to expand and enhance our mental skills. And as physical as boxing sounds, it's something that puts us completely uh, at, a, at a discomfort disadvantage. It's something no one on our team has ever done. And so you have to embrace being uncomfortable or you're going to fail miserably. You have to risk looking silly and not be afraid to make mistakes to be successful when you're doing something that's completely outside of your training. And we feel like the benefits of that are the way that it builds our mental toughness and our togetherness. Um, you know, so boxing is one of those ways that we do that. Um, Milk is our boxing coach, and he does uh, you know, a very enthusiastic job of teaching us the techniques of boxing, which I think there's a lot of great carryover with timing and reaction time, footwork, um, you know, a lot of those things that are good for basketball players. Uh, but, you know, his level of, of energy is also infectious. And our, our team, even though it was 6.30 in the morning every Friday, I think enjoyed being in there. And they really took pride in the fact that they were doing things that other programs weren't. Um, along those same lines, you know, meditation is, is a big thing that our team is doing this year as well. We're just trying to equip ourselves with as many mental skills as we possibly can because uh, everybody's working on their physical skills. How can we be different? That's what we're trying to find out. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Again, there's no football for you this weekend, but we'll get you geared up for Florida Georgia next week with a new podcast dropping on Thursday. Catch up on recent shows on the podcasting app of your choice and make sure to subscribe to Gator Tales to get our latest episodes as soon as they're available. So until next time, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.